Love those guys. Thank you, Brad and Desi. I'm Betsy Rosenberg, and I'm going to be joined in a moment by my uh, occasional co-host, more frequently the better, and that is D.R. Tucker. He is my favorite Republican turned climate convert, and we're going to have another uh, one of my new favorite Republicans on the show in the first segment. Um, you have uh, no doubt noticed that the weather is changing, and dots are beginning to be connected, except in one particular party, and especially those who are running for office, those who would like to lead us um, out of the abyss, except they're not recognizing at least one of the biggest problems we face, and that's what's going on with our environment, specifically what's going on with climate change. Well, if denial is the official Republican Party stance uh, as far as the election goes, and not uh, one of the presidential candidates uh, are acknowledging that there's even a problem there, and I don't think any of the congressional candidates are doing that as well. Well, um, Bob Inglis is bucking that trend. Representative Inglis was booted out of the U.S. House in 2010. That was the year of the Tea Party years, and that's exactly what happened to him when South Carolina voters gave his Tea Party challenger more than 70% of the primary vote among his sins, daring to be concerned about global warming. And despite the fact that it arguably cost him his seat, he has not given up on climate change or on his party. And that's uh, really good news because uh, if we give up now, where do we go from there? So he is uh, launching, has just launched a new initiative called the Energy and Enterprise uh, an initiative at the George Mason University, and it's all about promoting conservative solutions to climate change. So I'm very pleased to welcome to the Green Front, Bob Inglis. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, Betsy, for the opportunity. Great to be with you. Congratulations on, on your leadership. You know, um, Senator Whitehouse and you are really standing out. Uh, White House, of course, is not a Republican, but he's very bold on climate change. And a few weeks before that, John Kerry, of course, who once ran for highest office of the land, gave a, a stirring 54-minute speech on the uh, Senate floor chambers and uh, Senate chambers floor, rather. And he uh, is, is, you know, really speaking out now in a way that many of us wish he had done years ago. And, and so anytime we see leadership, anytime we see anyone bucking the trend, uh, we really want to give you all the um, applause that you deserve. So thank you. And if I had a sound effect for applause, we'd be playing it right now. We don't, but we get it. <laughs> and you do get it. How, do you, how is it that you get that climate change is a, is a you know, real and present threat and that it must be something that is dealt with and not denied? Did you have a wake-up call, or have you always kind of believed that what scientists are telling us just might be true? Well, I was a climate denier in my first six years in Congress. I served from uh, 93 to 99, and during those six years, I uh, said it was a figment of Al Gore's imagination and uh, actually made a lot of hay out of it. had a good press conference one time where we absolutely panned uh, Al Gore's uh, ideas there. Um, then I was out in Congress for six years um, and uh, developed a new constituency. My son was voting for the first time when I was running again in 2004. Uh, he just turned 18, and he said, uh, Dad, I'll vote for you, but you're going to clean up your act on the environment. And uh, so the problem for me was that his four sisters uh, who were coming along as voters as well uh, and his mother all agreed. So I had this new and important constituency. Um, and uh, so that was part of it. But then the other part, uh, when I got back to Congress, I got on the Science Committee and had the opportunity to go to Antarctica twice, actually, to see the work that we're doing there um, on uh, on our changing climate. And I really became convinced of the evidence uh, that uh, something is up and that we should act. Um, and so... Uh, you know, as one of these uh, folks who voted against cap and trade, I think it's the wrong solution. Uh, it's a grow government scheme. It, uh, it is a 
hopelessly complicated uh, approach in my view. It's embarrassing that they were going to give free allocations uh, and uh, decimate American manufacturing. So for all those reasons, I vote against it. But I proposed an alternative, um, which was a revenue-neutral tax swap, where we would reduce taxes on payroll, shift the tax to CO2, and essentially just change what you tax um, and set the economics right. And before we look at, you know, what to do going forward, um, you know, how did you feel just having that conversion, that shift? Must have been some period where you had what, what we uh, psychology majors in college call cognitive dissonance. Uh, yeah, well, there was. Um, but, you know, uh, there was some dissonance, mostly expressed, though, from constituents. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, from, mm-hmm. For me, it became pretty clear, especially uh, as the second trip that took the Antarctica, um, this wonderful opportunity to uh, be inspired by a climate scientist who um, is in Australia and who works for the American government in Australia. And just his example of being willing to change his life or and essentially love people that he doesn't know and will never know and generations that he may never know, it's really inspired me. So I, I felt that I was in the right spot uh, psychologically, uh, spiritually, even if uh, even if there was uh, disagreement from others. Because um, when you just know it's the right thing to do, you just you just know that and you proceed. Do we have DR on with us yet? Yes. How are you doing? Oh, thanks. I wasn't sure you were there. Go ahead. Um. Sure. Uh, uh, Bob, it's an, it's an absolute honor to speak to you. Uh, wh- what what do you think was the, the you, you know, after after you were you were sort of uh, exiled in, in that uh, in that South Carolina primary, uh, what 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 was your takeaway from that? What uh, was was it strictly the climate issue, or is it the uh, the segment the portion of the uh, was it was it the I remember this incident where you had, you told the uh, told an audience at a conference to uh, to turn off the Glenn Beck. Do you think that was also a factor in it, or do you think it was just a general sort of you know anti-government, anti-democrat, anti-anything they didn't like out of, out of the conservative media? Well, I think it's, it, I committed a number of heresies. You know, uh, I voted against troop surge. Uh, that wouldn't be so much a heresy today. It's interesting how political orthodoxies move around pretty quickly, isn't it? Um, yeah. I'm not sure that'd be a problem today to vote against the troop surge. Um, I, I voted disapproved Joe Wilson's outburst uh, against the president. I was for a comprehensive immigration solution. That's still heresy. Um, and uh, uh, you know, but but my main and most enduring heresy was just saying that climate change is real um, and let's do something about it. E- even though I voted against cap and trade for all the reasons I just said, it was still seen as a Heresy, and including something of a religious heresy, not just a political heresy, um, in that I was uh, joining those who were invading the province of God and um, saying that humans could uh, affect the longevity of the earth, which is seen as uh, invading the, the province of God, the sovereignty of God. Um, I, I'd try to indicate, well, isn't it also true that uh, human beings are responsible and that we should, uh, responsible moral actors should be stewards? Uh, but uh, that didn't help me too much. So uh, there's a number of heresies, but the main one was this uh, saying that climate change is real. It's interesting that there was a religious backlash because, uh, you know, you figure that Revelations 11:18 says that God will destroy those who destroy the earth. It, 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 the people who say, who, who make religious arguments against the reality of the science always seem to ignore that uh, portion of the Bible, don't they? 
Yeah, and, and, and ignore, too, the, um, the history of people of faith in science. Because when you think about it, the science, really, if you look back at the history and the development of scientific method, it was people of faith who had the faith that the universe reflects the order of a creator um, and that there are patterns that could be discovered that should be explored and studied is a way of really um, studying uh, that the creator's uh, excellences and, and perfections. And so that, that's where science comes from. If you think about it, uh, if, you, if you don't believe that, if you, don't, if you believe that everything's just random, then why in the world study science? Uh, because if it's all random, there are no patterns, there's no meaning. Um, but no, if you, if you believe, if you have faith, then uh, you, you'd make a particularly good scientist, because you're in search of the orderliness of the Creator. And in fact, uh, is it Richard Sizek who's been leading the way for evangelicals to embrace climate change for, I think, a decade now? Yeah, and it's, uh, I really appreciate his work, and and uh, Mitch Hescock's at the uh, Evangelicals and Evangelical Environmental Network. Really uh, great work being done by people of faith that uh, are countering what became what is really not conservatism, and I think really not consistent with uh, with Scripture. And that is this sort of notion that it's really more of a populist rejectionism. Um, that came out of the Great Recession. And so, sort of, B.R., you're asking where this comes from. A lot of the antipathy toward a position like mine or Mitch Hescox at Environmental, uh, Evangelical Environmental Network or, um, or Richard Tysick, um is that um, uh, it, it comes, I think, from the Great Recession's um, a challenge to all of the institutions that we... Uh, had been used to relying on. We relied on a banking system while it was shaking in the Great Recession. Uh, still may be shaking. Uh, government itself was uh, indebted beyond our imaginations and appears to be shaking. The Federal Reserve Board is doing things that people see as out of control and shaking. And so in that environment came this sort of populist rejectionism, which is sort of reject institutions, reject coming together as a community, um, go to your own, trust only yourself. Um, and, and that led, I think, to a lot of rejection of uh, climate science uh, or, or an increased rejection of climate science. Um, now, the good news is this, too, will pass. Um, that, that I think that the, the Great Recession and all the quaking will end at some point, and at that point will be looking more toward cooperative action on how to fix this, uh, and there is a way forward. Isn't part of the way out of it, uh, you know, really helping to hire people to make the transition to, you know, a cleaner energy future and uh, building greener cars and hiring more people in clean technology, you know, research and development, and, and is that happening in your opinion? Well, I think that is a big part of it, and of course, the way I'd like to see it done, and, and this is uh, uh, and, uh, even though we've just said that I get tossed out by the Tea Party, you're, you're talking to a pretty conservative fellow. You know, at 93 American Conservative Union rating, um, that's an A in most schools, I think. Um, <laughs> that's why uh, I love having people like you on. It's so interesting. <laughs> you know, 100% Christian Coalition, 100% National Right to Life, A with the NRA, zero with the ADA, 
23 by some mistake with the AFL-CIO. Really, I wanted a zero. Um, mm. And it's a pretty conservative guy, right? Um, so my notion of how we can get to what you're just describing, Betsy, is that free enterprise is the answer if we just fix the market distortion that exists in that um, uh, some competitors, the incumbent fossil fuel sources of energy, are able to get away with their hidden cost. We don't, we don't have a cop on the beat to say, no, you must be accountable for your hidden cost. We won't let you dump on the 23,600 people who die prematurely each year in the United States from uh, lung impairments that come from coal-fired electric, electrical plants. We won't let you escape accountability for the 3 million lost work days from the same set from those coal plants. Well, we want you to be accountable for those costs. And if you attach those costs to coal-fired electricity, uh, then you see how expensive it is, and you start looking for alternatives. Same thing when it comes to petroleum. Um, if you attach all the costs to petroleum, including the national security risk, uh, the, the defense, some of the defense costs, then you realize, gee, many, uh, gasoline is a lot more expensive than we think it is. Um, and and uh, here's where, Betsy and DR, some people would say, well, see, anyway, that's a terrible solution because if you put the real cost on gasoline, well, the price of gas would go up. And price electricity will go up. Well, unless you believe there's such a thing as a free lunch, uh, you would understand that we're we're already paying all of those costs. They, 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 we don't escape them. We don't escape the hidden costs. We just don't pay at the meter. We don't pay at the pump. If we paid at the meter and paid at the pump, we'd realize our need, and we'd be creating those jobs that Betsy was just referencing because there'd be new industries creating those brand-new challenger fuels rather than sticking with these smelly incumbents. Mm. So you have done something about it. You're not just talking about it. You've launched the Energy and Enterprise Initiative. First of all, you know, kudos to George Mason University with their climate change communications program. Uh, increasingly, I'm seeing them cited and, and just really important research coming out of there, and I'm sure you're pleased to be associated with them. Yes, I am. In fact, it's great work that Ed Maybach does there at the Center for Climate Change Communications, and uh, we're part of his center and very happy to, for the synergies that uh, will exist there because we, we plan on learning from his work. And he's been on uh, the Green Front as well as Anthony Lazarowitz with his research out of Yale. So uh, keep it coming. Yeah, and uh, really, it's a great partnership that GMU has with Yale, and uh, Tony and Ed are, um, are going to be important to uh, our work as we, as I say, learn from them and uh, and really try to um, try to understand where people are coming from and uh, give them this this hope that there's a way out. Because you know one of the key things to the rejectionism I was just talking about, Betsy and DR, I think, is this thought that we can't do anything about it, that we're toast. Um, and you know, if you're toast, you decide, well, I just okay, then I'll just deny it. Denial is a pretty good coping mechanism for an existential threat. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a hundred percent death rate. Um, we all know that, but none of us, none of the three of us, or anybody listening, is really thinking about that. Because denial will get you through it. Um, but if if you think that no, we're not toast, we can do something about this. There is a way out. Then you're more able to receive the science because you're able to look at it in the face, 
but realize, oh, but there's an alternative. There's a, there's a way forward. And that, that's what we've got to... And actually, I'm borrowing there from Ed and Tony's uh, research. It says that um, increasing the sense of efficacy will really in- increase the acceptance of science. So it's a very good point, and when you note and that the uh, we pay we don't pay the uh, health risks of dependence on, on fossil fuels at, at the pump at the hospital in terms of uh, you know respiratory ailments and all the other uh, uh, health issues that are associated with, with remaining dependent on fossil fuels like the burning of coal and what have you. Uh, I noticed it in the uh, in the energy and enterprise initiative. Uh, video that's that's on your site. You have a, a clip from Arthur Laffer has who says that he is uh, he, he's he's sort of agnostic on the science, but uh, he recognizes the economic benefits of, uh, of of placing a price on carbon. Has he, to your knowledge, faced the, faced the backlash or any sort of you know uh, hostility as a result of making that point? I don't, I don't know that for sure, but I would expect that he has. But something would tell me that Art Laffer just doesn't care, yeah. um, because he is a uh, he's a rather courageous and uh, and fun guy who uh, has a very uh, firmly held convictions about the power of free enterprise and the power of uh, free markets. And uh, I, I can tell you from experiences I've had with him, with uh, a group of a member of members of Congress, that he'll, he'll tell anybody. Whatever he thinks, rather directly, um, and he, he he's got the great luxury of of having uh, tremendous success uh, with Ronald Reagan and being associated with uh, President Reagan, and and I think he um, he says whatever he wants to say, and he doesn't really worry. Uh, but the the good news for us is that he's a he's a great example of how you don't have to you don't have to agree with uh, Bob Inglis, me, or Dr. or Betsy that climate change is real in order to want to act um, in fixing this market distortion. Because Art Laffer says in that uh, video that you're referencing, DR, he says, yeah, yeah, I'm agnostic as to climate change. And he would tell you in a longer plane version of that that he doesn't need to know whether it's real or not. Right? He'd say, all I need to know is you're taxing something you want more of, which is income, industry, uh, labor. Uh, but you're not taxing something you arguably, I think you definitely, but he says you arguably want less of, which is CO2. He says it's a no-brainer. Change what you tax. Mm-hmm. Um, and so our, our appeal to conservatives will be, at the Energy and Enterprise Initiative, will be um, be like Art Laffer uh, if you want to. So it's, don't take a position on whether climate change is real or not, but just recognize that there's a market distortion and that, Eliminating that market distortion would create those jobs that Betsy was referencing a few minutes ago, and it would improve the national security of the United States. And if you don't care about the air, well, forget about that third benefit, but would it bother you if we cleaned up the air? And, and Bob, now that your current job is no longer as a representative, and we're both very sorry about that, but does that embolden you, perhaps like Art Laffer, to speak your mind? And um, one of the things you're saying that I love is that... Uh, you know, if conservatives are all about accountability, okay, let's uh, hold the coal industry accountable for the premature deaths that they're causing and the lost days of work. Yeah, accountability is a key word, Betsy. That's what, that is a key concept for us as conservatives. We believe in accountability. It starts with really our whole notion of, uh, of humankind and responsibility. That We believe that we're responsible moral actors and that behavior has consequences. And we believe that markets reflect those behaviors and those consequences. 
Um, and so th- that's, it really is the deepest belief that we hold. And if you think about it, it fits with all the four docs of conservatism. You got a libertarian doc, you got a social issue conservative doc, you got a, a, a national security issue conservative doc, and you have an economic issue conservative doc. All four docs of conservatism, the entire waterfront of conservatism would say accountability is a key concept for all of us. And so all, so now, yes, I have sort of the freedom of, of, uh, saying that, uh, very, Clearly, and encouraging fellow conservatives to to realize this is our story. This is our song. This is we, the nation is waiting for us to present the muscular free enterprise solution. Um, they, they seem to know the country seems to know that fickle tax incentives and clumsy government mandates probably aren't going to fix it. That uh, you need something way more muscular than that. Something like the Internet and the PC that transformed our lives because people like Bill Gates were chasing the dollar. Uh, and they created enormous wealth for themselves, and we conservatives celebrate that. We think it's wonderful. Um, and uh, we also know that in the process, uh, people like Bill Gates served me, his customer. Um, and so it's, it's our story. It's our song. It's what, we, what we're good at. And... Uh, so, yeah, it gives me the freedom to say that pretty boldly. Good, Bob. And um, one of the things that I've been working on, along with the R, we're talking about it mostly, is the need for perhaps a green tea party. You probably agree that uh, one of the things people should be angry about is the fact that government's not doing anything about climate change. And, of course, that's the, the tea parties have it right there for you in terms of not even acknowledging there's a problem or that man has caused it. Um, so we're saying... For those of us who are esteemed that they're playing politics with our one and only planet, you know, we need another party, really just kind of an educational outreach party, not a political party per se, but just that says, you know, we're not talking about the green elephant in the room, you know, the 800-pound gorilla, which is climate change for starters, and then all kinds of other related environmental crises that are looming. And because we didn't see any talk of that in the Republican, you know, debates, and we really don't hear much of it on either side, with the election just about four months away, uh, we, I still am convinced we need some you know, entity on some platform to say, wait a minute, we're, we're really missing the big story here. What are you going to do about that, candidates? Yeah, it, it could be. Uh, uh, I will tell you, I think that the current circumstances call for an awful lot of grace probably from progressives toward people like me, a conservative, because um, I, I'm here as this guy that voted against cap and trade, and there were many progressives who were brought on board for cap and trade. Uh, they didn't really like it, but they tried to fall in love with the concept of the girl rather than the girl herself. Um, you know, and uh, so they did. They did force themselves to fall in love with it. And now that uh, conservatives like me started criticizing it, we need an awful lot of grace from progressives to to go forward now with a solution that works. And uh, I think there is one available, and it is this free enterprise approach. Um, just the elegant pricing of carbon, the fixing of the market distortion. I describe that as a conservative solution. Art Laffer would describe it that way. The reality is there are a good number of progressives that would also agree with exactly the same thing. Um, uh, but uh, my first uh, task is to try to convince uh, conservatives that really, Mr. Conservative, Mrs. Conservative, you've got the answer that the country is waiting for. It's called free enterprise. It's called fixing that market distortion. And I'm going to let DR jump in with a question in just a second, but uh, before we wrap up, I wanted to just get part two of my question was 
are you really hoping to have some impact on the 2012 election with this new initiative you're launching, or is this a longer-term effort? Have you given up on this election as far as climate change being part of the Republican platform? I think it's a longer-term effort. Um, I mean, we'd happily have an impact on this election, but the reality is we have to build support. Our, Our task at the Energy and Enterprise Initiative is to build support for office holders uh, to, to take action on uh, energy and climate, and to and, uh, cause them to to have the the covering fire, if you will, so they can get up out the foxholes where they're hiding. They, they they many of them in those foxholes know that we need to act on energy and climate. They they know about the economics that I'm talking about. This is this is their expertise, but. They're pinned down in those foxholes because of the <laughs> intense uh, sort of fire from the populist rejectionist. Um, but if we can come along and give them some covering fire, uh, maybe they can get out of the foxhole and start up the hill, um, you know, and, and, and go take this hill. Um, but it's Sorry, a, uh, we're not when you said foxhole, I suddenly thought of Fox News. It seemed like a good word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we we, uh, you know, we we can't ask at this point, uh, uh, say, uh, Governor Romney to uh, uh, you know really uh, change his position or support our position in, until we build the support. We, we've got to we've got to do our work uh, in districts and the states of this country so that office holders can feel that support and. Um, because the reality is uh, the Congress well reflects uh, the American people. We, we all like to complain about the Congress, but the reality is Congress nearly perfectly reflects us, the people. Um, and the reality is we all want a balanced budget, but don't dare touch my parents' Social Security, Medicare, or my niece's Medicaid uh, is disabled. Uh, please don't touch any of those things. Um, well, the Congress takes my instructions. They do exactly what I'm telling them to do, which is talk about it, but don't do anything about it. Um, and so what you have to do is change that equation so that we, the people, are supportive of office holders actually seeking solutions. It's a, it's a very good point. Uh, I was going to say, you, you had mentioned some of the, uh, some of the Republicans that are sort of sort of hiding in plain sight in terms of their support for efforts to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, do, do you know if there are any, any of those Republicans at some of the uh, libertarian-leading think tanks in D.C. that might be willing to step up? Uh, I, I'm mentioning, of course, the backlash that occurred uh, after the reports about the American Enterprise Institute having a discussion about the theoretical benefits uh, of, of a carbon tax, and just seeing how some of those think tanks basically went ballistic. Is there any way that, that you know, those think tanks can be engaged with, or do you think they're basically locked in their, their position that it's all a hoax and there's nothing that uh, we should do to reduce emissions? Well, I think some are locked in that position, DR, and uh, uh, here's what I'd predict for them. History will not treat them well, mm. uh, because, you know, uh, if you've got a shaky ideology, um, it can't hold back facts forever. Eventually, the facts will overwhelm their shaky ideology. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and and when it does, history doesn't treat people well who had that shaky ideology and that held on to it and kicked and screamed as the facts mounted against it. Um, and so, better to go ahead and say as soon as you can, listen, we we're just we're just wrong on this and. Uh, 
uh, and we do have an economic uh, challenge here. We do have a market distortion. Let's fix it. The, the good news is there are some, uh, and it's a direct answer to your question, there are some that are uh, ready to act. Um, I'm very excited, for example, with uh, the creation of R Street um, out of the uh, wreckage of uh, the Heartland Institute uh, in Washington and the collapse of its office there uh, because of some really outrageous things that Heartland was doing. Um, that's a very encouraging sign. Um, and the other encouragement I get that really DR is from any any think tanks associated with the insurance industry. Mm. Um, because, you know, if you're in the casualty insurance business, you must listen to your actuaries, and they must listen to scientists. They can't be like the North Carolina legislature and say, uh, you know, by statute the sea can't rise but this much. Well, you know, you can pass such a law, uh, but if you're an insurance company and you plan on staying in business, you better listen to the scientists and they inform your actuaries and then you set policy. Well, we hope your fellow Republicans will listen to you. Are you planning to get back into Congress, or do you think you have more clout here? And certainly on the climate issue, we need your voice. Well, the rather spectacular face plant, you know, here in the 4th District of South Carolina in 2010. <laughs> so it's sort of hard to see a way back uh, politically. But but I'm uh, very excited about this opportunity at the Energy and Enterprise Initiative because it, it's something I'm very passionate about. And, uh, you know, uh, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crisis we face in energy and climate. And crisis, you know, in Chinese, two characters. One is danger and the other is opportunity. And I think that's what it is. It's a danger. There's also an incredible opportunity. Uh, and uh, so I'm excited about being part of that. Well, thank you so much for all that you're doing and giving to the cause, and we will keep you in mind in uh, future shows because uh, we need more voices like yours with affiliations and uh, credibility and you know history like yours. And mostly we're excited about your future initiative. Thanks so much for launching it. When we come back in just a moment, we're going to talk about an initiative to organize America's young people around the climate issue. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Green Front. 